0: Hello and welcome to Women in Confidence with me, Vanessa Murphy, HR expert, confidence coach, and now podcaster. This podcast discusses all things to do with confidence in life and in work. And this is a podcast for women who want to learn what confidence is, how to obtain it, and how to maintain it, and learn how confidence can help you grow and flourish. Every week, I introduce you to amazing women who have interesting stories to tell about confidence. Through their stories, insights, hints and tips, you realise that a lack of self-belief or low self-esteem is common and also very human. But by listening to them, you'll take away what they have done to show up confidently on the inside as well as on the outside. If I told you that it was possible to take the complex concept of confidence and put it into three easy to understand terms or steps would you believe me well my guest this week has done just that and i'm joined by dr anna kane on women in confidence and the doctor part of her title is really important one because it's an amazing achievement to complete a phd and is not a small undertaking and two because her phd is in confidence at work which is why i jumped at the chance to get anna on the show So Anna is an occupational psychologist and is the owner of Zest Psychology, which is her business to address the complex issues facing people, businesses in today's workplace. She's also a coach, a teacher and a really strong advocate for diversity, inclusion, fairness and well-being. So Anna, hello and welcome to Women in Confidence. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Vanessa. It's really great to be here. Really nice. Yeah. Thank you. And I wonder if you could just tell everybody where you are at the moment.
1: So I'm in Brighton on the south coast of um, the UK. So it's a beautiful sunny morning this morning. I've just, well, the first thing I did this morning was wake up and go for a run along the seafront. Oh so uh, yeah, Brighton's um, just directly south of London. And uh, some people call it London by sea. And I say it absolutely isn't because it's totally got its own personality. It's where all the, young and trendy people hang out and the hipsters and it's very difficult to stand out in Brighton for being different.
0: (laughs) And it must be quite early there in the morning, um about eight o'clock I think.
1: Yeah, it's just gone eight o'clock this morning.
0: Yeah. And nice to hear it's good weather.
1: Nice to hear from a Brit
0: to a Brit that the weather's good.
1: Absolutely. We can't help but talk about it and (laughs) it's been beautiful this week. So too hot.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Very true. (laughs) Right, we should start talking about women and confidence, or particularly confidence because of um, your specialisation and one of the reasons why I have you on and your experience and knowledge and your doctorate in confidence. So absolutely, we're going to talk about that. But I want to start by asking you a question, which I ask everybody, and that is, what does having confidence mean to you? That's a great question. So, so confidence for me has become a life's work rather than
1: just a kind of oh less well, I know what confidence feels like when I've got it. So as you said, I've got a doctorate and I, I studied confidence doing my doctorate. So I guess the, the theoretical answer, but it's also a real life answer, is that confidence is actually a fairly complex <clears throat> excuse me, fairly comp- complex phenomenon. So there are three components to confidence, and um, you can have a certain type of mindset that helps bring on confidence. It's more complex than you think, but also some people kind of think that they've either got it or they haven't got it. And, and for me, <clears throat> through my work, I've realised that actually we can master confidence. So whilst you may you may identify as someone with without much confidence, you can actually seek to work on that and grow your confidence and become more confident. so for me confidence is something that changes it's something that is impacted by the people around us and it's impacted by the way that we approach our lives and our work and yeah I mean I can I can talk uh, for hours about what confidence is at first glance it's really important I think to acknowledge that it's not something that's fixed and and you know given to us at birth
0: (laughs) Well, I'm going to come back to lots of things you've mentioned. And, you know, if we talk for hours, we talk for hours because that's the topic of this podcast and and having you on is just amazing. But I want to talk about this confidence about it not being static because Mm. I think you're right. People do believe that you've either got it or you haven't. And I really liked something you said to me when we last spoke about this spiraling up and down, I think, of confidence. Can you just talk about that, please? That'd be great.
1: Yeah, so I'll probably just say a bit more about what happens before you spiral up and down so the three components that make up confidence are competence so like your knowledge your skills and i'm this i'm talking workplace here i'm not really talking about kind of you know how we are in our personal lives uh, so knowledge skills and the feedback that we get from other people do people give us like positive feedback and then authenticity so do you turn up to be yourself at work and do you live by your values at work and do you know who you are you know Do you do those kind of personality questionnaires or do you do journaling? Do you reflect upon who you are? And then there's a social side, so connectedness. And so that could be about getting and receiving support and engaging with other people in a way that has an impact on them that you want to have. And then also feeling like you belong, so a sense of belonging to either your organization or your profession. And so when those when those three components are in place, and they often interact. You know, if you can feel like you can be yourself at work, then you're more likely to want to engage with other people. So the, your authenticity might interact with how you connect with other people, for example. So when they're all in place and interacting, then we're much more likely to spiral up in our in our confidence. And particularly if we've got a, a particular event or a challenging piece of work, then we we can work to have all of those components in place on purpose. And find ourselves having a confident performance at work. Whereas if they're not in place, and that might be something that you haven't managed to succeed for yourself. Maybe you haven't learned enough about what you're doing. Or it might be that someone else comes along and does something and they might say, Oh, well, you know, like, what are you doing here in a meeting? And it might be something as simple as that. And suddenly that makes you feel like you shouldn't belong. You know, you don't belong in that in that meeting room or on site where something's you know being filmed or whatever your job is and you might suddenly just spiral down in confidence and it's almost like you can feel it you know the floor parting and I know certainly when it happens to me the blood just drains all the way down to my feet and I and it I can feel every millimeter of blood just (laughs) dripping, just dripping down to my feet and it's one of the worst feelings in the world Uh, you know on a when we're talking about day-to-day life so yeah so confidence really does spiral up and spiral down and the more we know about our confidence the more we can have probably maybe a bit more of a stable baseline because we because as I was saying earlier you can kind of master your confidence but sometimes you can't stop that confidence spiraling down and you just have to ride the wave you have to just go down that spiral.
0: And some of the things you talked about um, of sort of more short term spirals up or down. So somebody yeah. talking to you in a meeting or not talking to you or whatever. Is the same true in a more long term? So if you have the competence, the authenticity and the connectedness on a more long term scale, is it the same?
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. And for example, say you say you work somewhere where you kind of consistently feel like you're a, you know, a spare part or you're not really one of the gang then over time that can really kind of chip away at your confidence and because it's because you're not having the dramatic performances where you know you give a presentation and you go yes right that was great or you're not having dramatic you know that someone says something and you suddenly spiral down then you don't you're not always aware as aware of it and so just kind of incrementally your confidence can become lower and lower and you can be you can get people can get stuck in downward spirals for like years and years in the same way you can have an upward spiral of confidence for years and years it's not to say that within that you don't have mini spirals up and down but yeah absolutely it's a it's a bigger picture thing as well as a you know, something that can happen in five minutes.
0: Thing. Mm. I sort of think about a stock market and you see the little graphs in the newspaper on the TV, because who reads newspapers these days? And, yeah. um, you know, and you see a general trend, but in there there's sort of ups and downs or, yeah. yeah. These three components, do they all need to be in balance for them to you to say, I feel confident or can you have lots of competence and no connectedness and be still the same? Yeah, it's such an interesting thing,
1: isn't it? So my immediate answer is yes and no. <laughs> 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 because, because it is quite complex and there isn't a straightforward answer. And everyone's different. So the yes is that some people will naturally rely on one part, one component more than another. A lot of people rely on their, their knowledge and skill. So they become an expert at work, at what they do. And that gets them promoted, and it makes them feel confident. And you know, it's like you know, if you're if you want to find out about something at work, go and ask Jane. She'll tell you about it. And so you know, she'll be quite confident answering any questions on on like some accounts question or something. And individuals feel happier relying on different parts of different components for their confidence. But the no bit comes in in that our work and lives shift and change and so if we over rely on something for our confidence and then that gets taken away or no longer features in our work then we can be a bit done for (laughs) so a really common thing is that what I said earlier about people getting promoted because they're an expert so imagine you're a lawyer and you you Got promoted because you won lots of cases and you were really good in one particular field. So you got promoted, and then you started on taking fewer cases and leading more lawyers. Then suddenly you might be doing some kind of business development or running. I'm not. I don't know a lot about lawyers. So I don't know why I've used this example. To be honest with you. <laughs> really rubbish example for me to use because I might be talking rubbish. Stick but, with it. <laughs> but I'll stick with it. Essentially they they're doing less that they're an expert in and doing more about supporting other other lawyers, doing more in the business and you know, maybe looking at how to manage staff and so on. And then they've lost so they've lost their expertise in their legal world and actually are starting to become managers. Then if they haven't built up the connectedness or the authenticity around how they do other bits of their work, then their confidence might take a nosedive when they get promoted because they can't rely on being an expert I actually work with civil servants a lot so civil servants find the same thing that the higher they get up the organization the more they're doing leadership stuff and they're not an expert in uh, carbon neutral cars policy or whatever it is that they do so so it's I think it's fairly common across a lot of industries to get promoted up but then, but then the other—you might not be about promotion. You might, like for example, myself. I rely, I rely a lot on connectedness for my for my confidence. And so, suddenly, if you find yourself where in a place where you can't reach out to the right people, or the people that you kind of worked with change, then suddenly, you know, that might be a problem because you're you help you can't rely on that. So the best way to have a stable sense of confidence is to purposefully develop all three components and a healthy enhancing mindset so that if one of them wobbles then you've got the others to to lean on and you're not suddenly stuck for where to go for your confidence
0: and so if you were to find yourself and I'm you know I've been there I'm sure many people have been there where they do spiral down and you think well how bad can it get is to focus on it's attaching or increasing in across across all those three so that's competence authenticity and connectedness is to increase them all you know not necessarily the equal yeah. amounts but to some extent focus on all three of them to some extent or
1: I, I think like for me the key bit would be to identify what it is that you've lost from the mm. components when you spiral down so if it's if if someone said something that's that's challenged your sense of belonging then until you really get that back in place it's going to be difficult to feel confident again because especially if that's important to you if your mm. your sense of belonging is is an important thing to you you value it then it's going to be difficult to to raise all three essentially it's the bits that are missing that you need to get back in, back in place
0: I mean the the three or the model does lead me to think you, there has a there's an element of self-awareness needed around this and do you find with the people you work with and we'll come on to what you do shortly because we haven't missed that bit Um, (laughs) do you find the people that you work with they don't necessarily know themselves very well and so don't know where to start
1: yeah yeah that can be the case and sometimes I so I'm a coach for most of my work not all of it but I coach um a lot of civil servants and uh, and people from other organizations and industries (laughs) Some people come to me because they don't know themselves. And as that is part of confidence, so the authenticity bit is knowing yourself, then they may not necessarily realise that they don't know themselves. But once we've done a kind of profiling process of, like this is what you need to be confident, they'd come to me for confidence. And then we might establish, okay, actually, I don't really know who I am. They might have at one point in their their life, but they might not anymore, either because they may have had kids and spent a lot of time being a parent and not really readjusted their sense of who they are because they haven't had time they've been busy parenting and working and you know getting on with life or it might just be that they're brought up in a culture where it's not encouraged to think about yourself it's encouraged to think about other people and serve other people they've never really invested in that development of knowing who they are understanding their own personality and values and what they enjoy and so then it's a process of okay where should we start then then get you getting to know yourself it, it's a really um it's a really interesting place to be as a psychologist I find that hard to imagine not knowing yourself because I I can't count the amount of personality tools that I've done on myself <laughs> as part of my training <laughs> and it, I always come out as a rule breaker and I always always come out as, you know, there's certain personality traits that pop up every time. That's not, you know, other people's lives aren't always like that. So it's always important to remember that other people's lives can be really
0: different to our own. Mm. And I've certainly found since coaching around confidence and women in particular, because that's the area I focus, is how many, and I was really caught, I was quite surprised by this, how few women really do know themselves. And I think, you know, you're right, there are certain life-changing elements that do get you to think uh, who actually am I or you know you mentioned parenting and you sort of forget who you are for a while and I can totally um, attest that but I but I'm always surprised how little people know about themselves and yeah. it to me is the is the starting place for confidence yes. the inside yeah. bit be confident inward before you can be confident outwardly outward
1: yeah, yeah. absolutely
0: because if you if you don't know who you are
1: then how do you know what it is you're trying to present to the world? And part of confidence is about how we present to the world. It's not necessarily, you know, like there's the whole thing about fake it till you make it, you know, there's a, I could talk for a long time about that as well. But essentially where you want to get to is your authentic self being the self that you're happy presenting to the world. And if if you do that confidently, then the world tends to accept that. Version of yourself. Obviously, there is bias and discrimination, and people have, you know, yeah, can be can judge people based on their protected characteristics or or all sorts of things. But in the on the whole, if you present authentically to the world and you believe in that true sense of who you are, then those around you tend to accept it as well because. Because you're not questioning it or doubting it, others tend to do that less too. Mm. Um, and it, you know, it's hard to say that without sounding like I'm generalising. Because I'm sure there'll be people listening to this who say, when I present my true version of myself, then you know people react and judge me. And, and I know that does happen. We, and we have to find. Sometimes it's a case of finding a world that doesn't judge us and bias against us. So I've I've coached people who who've actually moved organizations because they've realized that they could never really live live or be themselves at work in their kind of really authentic way. And, and that's slowly eaten away at their confidence. And so actually they've decided to move. And you know, you kind of think, well, why should they move? Why? but actually you can't change a whole organization and its values and its way of, you know, it's culture. You work single-handedly, so sometimes it's best to find a, a culture that suits you.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I've seen people who have left companies and they all have, uh, you know, in my line of work, I have to make people redundant, etc. And they are actually relieved because they were able to move from the culture where they couldn't be themselves for a whole host of reasons. And they actually... Start to shine in the next company, and you know that that is life. And I was going to come back to something because we were talking about you know knowing yourself, and I think don't want people to think that's that's that we're fine, and and it's easy for us to say know yourself, but it is actually quite a tricky process, I think, to know yourself. It takes time, and it takes a lot of effort. Yeah, yeah, no, you have to put the work in, and
1: sometimes you know people don't want to have to kind of do that honest, hard reflection upon themselves. For me, I like I. I've done a lot of work on understanding who I am. Uh, obviously, I mentioned doing lots of personality questionnaires. for me they're not they're not actually what brings the personal insight. it's the I do a lot of meditation, I've done a lot of journaling, I've done a lot of i do a lot of i have a lot even now I have a lot of supervision where I reflect upon who I am as a coach and how I interact with people and my values and my ethics. So I'm constantly investing in in reflecting upon myself to the point where my girlfriend's like, oh my God, how much time do you have to spend thinking about yourself? (laughs) (laughs) You know, some people can see it as an an indulgence, but certainly in my line of business, if I don't know who I am, then that can influence the way that I coach people and that can have unintended consequences but actually that's the same for most people in their line of work if they're engaging with people on a day by day basis if they don't know who they are then they won't really understand fully how how they impact other people so that if you're a manager or or you have you know you have a lot of relationships at work where you're having to deal with stakeholders or clients or customers then the better you know yourself the better equipped you are to relate to other people in a way that gets the best out of
0: that relationship mm, so, i could you relate know. to that yeah. yeah i used to work for this amazing company in the uk and i'll not name them but the, we we realized that the the impact a manager can have on somebody and so we we spent an awful lot of time and money on people like yourself and your organization on helping our managers really understand themselves and and most importantly the impact they were having so it's te- having the knowledge and that's great but actually what impact is that having on other people But I want to ask you, so you've got your model. How did you come to have this model? I mean, tell me about your journey to being a psychologist and not just a normal psychologist, but a chartered occupational psychologist.
1: Yeah, well, it's quite a long journey. I mean, how long have you got? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So for me, the the journey started back as a kid, really. I mean, I, I I always kind of viewed myself as a psychologist, before I was able to study psychology and I'm not sure at which point I kind of realized that about myself I studied A-level psychology I was really excited about being able to study A-level psychology before I did that I was so for people who aren't in the who aren't Brits that's about 17 that you start studying A-level psychology prior to that I used to always be observing people reflecting upon people and you know, theorizing about different people and the impact they had and all that, all of those kind of psychology things. And then I was like, yeah, brilliant, I get to study psychology A-level. And I, it was actually quite a weird experience because because I'd got a whole load of theories in my head about how people work and what drives them and motivates them. and dah, dah, dah. And then when I started studying A-level psychology, I was really shocked because I was like, some of these studies just don't actually make any sense. And that, you know, they're they're using like animals to understand something about humans or, you know, they've created this like really contrived scenario to test something that's, you know, quite a kind of complex human phenomenon. And it just actually really confused me and and kind of my world fell apart a little bit in terms of psychology because I was just like, can't really buy into the into the psychology experiment way of doing things so it kind of blew my mind a bit and it took me quite a little while to piece it all back together I really and I wasn't actually that good at at studying psychology because I got rubbish results at my A-level exams that didn't do brilliant at my degree either because it was all about learning names of psychologists and dates that they did studies and the precise mechanism by which they did their their psychology, which is really not my strength at all. I'm much better at analysing people and looking at situations and observing things that other people might not notice. And all of that gets lost in some of the experiments. But I still stuck with it, and I and I enjoyed it. So I then just I studied my degree, then went and got jobs doing doing recruitment and things like that. And hit a bit of a glass ceiling and decided to go back to university again and did occupational psychology, which is basically business workplace psychology. So I studied that and did, again, lots of the theory and didn't necessarily feel that connected to it. But got a job afterwards doing recruitment and didn't didn't even really want to be doing recruitment. This story doesn't sound that fun, does it? It's all these things that I'm not enjoying but who likes recruitment? I mean, really. <laughs> I know lots of people love recruitment, but eventually, I found myself doing the stuff that I love, and and what I love is coaching people and do, developing people. And I was having conversations with people about I do a, a recruitment process for this particular organisation that I work for a lot, and we'd put them through three days of hell basically to see if they could if they could get the job. And regardless of whether they got the job or not, we'd have a session with them afterwards to help them learn from the experience and see how they can move forward with their career. And time and time again, I was hearing people saying, well, I'm, you know, I know you've just promoted me, but I still don't feel like I've got the confidence to do it. Or if they didn't get through, they'd be like, yeah, well, I just don't have the confidence. So, you know, so I was hearing that time and time again. And it reminded me of when I was back at A-levels doing A-level psychology. And I'd started and I, you know, I was like rustling around in all the textbooks for all the things that were that interested me that I was thinking about before I started A-level psychology. And one of them was confidence. And I was looking in the back of the textbooks, kind of going, right, where's definition of self-confidence? And I was like, there isn't one. Oh, hang on, right, well, let me find the, another textbook. Not one here either. And so I, I was literally scouring, and in those days you didn't have a lot of textbooks. But the ones that, that I had, they talked about self-esteem and they talked about self-efficacy. So self-esteem is our belief in our ability to achieve something that we want to. And self-esteem is our relationship with ourselves. So do we like ourselves in line with our values? But I, for me, self-confidence was was, some, there was, some, was something else. And the conversations I was having with these people who'd gone through this recruitment process they were kind of saying the same thing and I was like okay so for like 20 years I've never understood what self-confidence is or I've understood it but there's not been a definition of it and the people that I'm coaching were saying the same thing they were like I've been told I need to be more confident which is you know the most worst thing you can <laughs> say to someone <laughs> just be more confident oh okay sorry I didn't think of that <laughs> I'll get <laughs> on with it then shall I? But either they were telling themselves or other people were telling them to be more confident. And they were like, I don't I don't even really know what it is. And if I did know what it was, I wouldn't know how to start on it. And so that's what really got me interested in confidence. And it, it, it's just interesting that, that that kind of lack of definition went right back. You know, and i would noticed it right back when I was 17 and trying to make sense of, of the psychology world. And then 20 or so years later, when I... Was earning money, applying psychology to the workplace and and essentially then decided to study it in when I got an opportunity to do a doctorate, a professional doctorate. So I looked at all of the research literature in a systematic way, which is really tough. A systematic literature review, if anyone out there's ever done one, they'll know just the pain that goes into one. But essentially it's a really thorough systematic look at the literature and what I discovered was that I was right as a 17 year old there was no definition of self-confidence so then I set about developing the model and I the one thing that when I was doing my research that really was frustrating was that the research around that I did look at around self-esteem self-efficacy a lot of those studies were looking at, at undergraduate caucasian students in america and you know that's that's great for those for that small part of the population but for everyone else it doesn't really reflect their lives so i made sure that when i did my my primary research i interviewed people who from a whole cross section of backgrounds so that we weren't just developing a construct of confidence for one part of society which was really important to me um
0: and and plays out in my work now and how did you come up with the three components
1: they just emerged from the research basically so what I did was I interviewed I had a a co-researcher and we interviewed uh just under 30 people and we asked them about a time when they felt confident and a time when they didn't feel confident we we did, we used a slightly different research methodology as well i was i was really clear that confidence is not just about what you believe in because if you like if you look at the history of sorry i'm going off on a tangent again <laughs> <That's now. fine. laughs> if, you, if you look at the history of leadership in western society predominantly it's been white middle class men in leadership positions and only in the last kind of couple of decades of women really started to feature. So a lot of of psychological um, workplace theories were developed around middle-class white men. So a lot of the old leadership theory was based on that. It's not anymore because people have done a lot, you know, people have looked at it and reviewed it and realised that, you know, the hero leadership style is just kind of old school And so, you know, the world's moved on, but not all theoretical constructs have, is my opinion. And it's not just about leaders. You know, a lot of the researchers in psychology used to be certain, you know, white men doing experiments and looking at, at themselves essentially to understand constructs for the whole of society. So where have I got to? Yeah, so about the three components. So basically we interviewed just under 30 people. We asked them about, Moment of high confidence, moment of low confidence. And I wanted to do an embodied way of working with people. So we did a body awareness practice before they started the interview, both the interviewer and the person being interviewed, so that we would come at the interview from an embodied place rather than just, I believe that I could do this. So off I go, which tends to be the situation that men find themselves in because they're supported more in the workplace. So with the that's why the and we asked about other people as well. We asked about the impact other people had on w- whether they were feeling confident or not. And so, that emerged, from there emerged this model where you've got three components so, more than just competence, you know, knowledge, skills, feedback it's the authenticity piece and it's the connectedness, and that actually confidence isn't just. It's not, there's not, I call it, it's not a social vacuum, which means it's not, you know, it's not like someone without any social interactions at work. And because we because we took that approach to interviewing where where we really opened up to a range of different people, they started talking about, well, you know, I had a great boss in this situation where I was feeling confident. And so we started to notice, okay, there's a connectedness part to it. That You need to know what you're doing in order to do your job but then also you need to be yourself. And, and that came from interviewing a whole range of people. We interviewed cisgender and transgender women and men. So for people who are not familiar with those terms, cisgender is the gender you are assigned at birth. And transgender is someone who has transitioned in their own way of transitioning from the gender they were assigned at birth. And then we also interviewed non-binary people. So people who don't identify with gender in a in the kind of, binary way and there's many ways in which you can be non-binary but it's a it's breaking away from that traditional binary perspective of gender male female and it's what you were assigned at birth and so we also interviewed people from a range of ethnicities ages socio-economic backgrounds and so that gave the whole element of needing to feel authentic in order to be confident which probably would have been missed in previous mm. research because it would have just been um, someone who already was allowed to be themselves. So they never even questioned the right to to be themselves because if you're a white man who, who's been told, like right, you're a leader, even though we haven't even checked whether you've got the skills to do it or not, off you go, then they don't, that's, there's no question about whether they should be there or not. Um, but for everyone else there will be a question about it so you need to you need to kind of connect in with that authenticity piece so that's where how the three components emerged
0: and because your the your interviews were so diverse was it the first of its kind then to have that sort of broad group of people to interview based on you know what you're trying to achieve around confidence as well yeah i
1: I think so I mean there will be other researchers out there who've I would hope there's other researchers out there who've gone to, to a diverse pool of research participants but certainly for what I was doing I wasn't seeing it anywhere in any of the literature I was looking at and it, it, when I was publishing my papers which is another painful process to go through <laughs> I, I, I went to to it's a basically a peer review process. So you submit your paper and you have a couple of experts look at your work and come back with some feedback. And I had to justify having transgender people in, in my, in my um, participant pool, which absolutely shocked me. And basically, they wanted to, a justification for having a diverse range of people to this day, I still don't really understand how they can ask that question because it I, it confuses me as to how you wouldn't want a diverse range of people if you're looking to understand a construct from a global perspective. I.e., if you if you're looking just to understand something for a particular part of society, then fine, you just ask that particular part of society. But if you're looking to understand a global construct, then you need to understand you need to ask a global pool of people, and you know just under 30 people is not going to be like that global anyway, just by the size of it. Yeah, it was a really interesting journey as to how I think parts of academia are really behind behind the curve when it comes to thinking about the makeup of society and how we need to actively include all all different types of people in our research to make sure that the research is robust.
0: And I'm glad you pushed on then and, and did finish your your PhD on this regardless of what somebody questioned when you were having to do your peer review and when when having gone through this process of interviewing people what did you notice about yourself and your confidence gosh what did I notice about myself
1: what through when I was going through the
0: whole... yeah because you were sort of unpacking what other people were saying about their confidence did you yeah. sort of turn the lens on yourself and go okay Anna what's it telling you absolutely did I
1: turn the lens on myself <laughs> <laughs> it was really it was really tough actually because because I I'd started this like professional doctorate I just need to say that I want to qualify this bit the the peop- the peers who were reviewing my work that that they weren't at the university I was working at that was like the world of publishing that I just want to correct that because actually the people who, who reviewed my work within the university that I studied at were amazing and they were really good and they were really ahead of the curve. So I don't want anyone to, to not that anyone would kind of look it up, but I just need to say that. Yeah, of um, yeah no, because the university was brilliant. Yeah, so I went through quite a lot of highs and lows. I mean, doing a professional doctorate is is quite confidence stretching anyway, or it was for me. and to begin with I was like okay so I'm going to study confidence what does this say about me will this will will this say to everybody that I encounter oh look Anna obviously hasn't got any confidence because she wants to study it because everyone says you know whatever you study is actually kind of a core part of who you are (laughs) and I was like okay so well there are times when I don't have confidence so I can't deny that that allegation isn't true. So then I was like, so what does that mean? How do I feel about that? Am I ashamed about that? Well, I think there is a part of me that's a bit ashamed about not being as confident as maybe I could be. And I was like, okay, so what does that mean then? That, then that, That means that there's some kind of a taboo around confidence. And so if that's going to stop me from studying it, then that in itself is not a good thing. And so, like, I just spent a lot of time in in these types of places, really trying to kind of get through that soul searching of what does it mean to really um, look at your own confidence and understand it and come out the other side. And one of the things I did conclude, which isn't about me, it's about the people I work with, is that there's a lot of people out there who have the confidence to say, I don't have the confidence, (laughs) which I really admired in other people. I think it's such a, you know, it's an impressive thing to be able to turn around and say. But for me, yeah, I did really look at my own confidence. And I looked back on the times that when I would really lost my confidence. And funnily enough, I had a really horrible experience with one project once at work. And it really, it really took the wind out of my confidence, sales. So I, yeah, I had a big nosedive. And actually, that I think that was the turning point at which I decided to really, from then on, be truly authentic in the work that I do, and only take on pieces of work that I really believe in and that I re- that are properly aligned with my values. And then from there, I actually got the opportunity. Well, around that time was offered the opportunity to take on the professional doctorate and I did and then confidence emerged from there even though I've been thinking about it for quite some years. There was a kind of a a weird number of things happening at the same time and and I do honestly believe that having a really massive downward spiral and coming out the other side is what has led to this research and me coming out. And generally these days I feel pretty confident and I work on stuff that I enjoy and that I that aligns with my values. Not to say that I don't have confidence dips, I do. And when they happen, I'm so very, very aware of them. <laughs> <laughs> you,
0: <laughs> like, oh, you would hope you're aware the of them. But so I yeah, think what you I were think... saying about, you know, you, you had a nosedive. I hear that a lot and I probably have felt it, that actually many people, and it isn't, you know, whatever gender you identify with, People have to go through this spiral down, and I use your term spiraling down, to have Mm. to then go through this process of asking themselves who they are and asking all those questions. And it frustrates me that we have to, it's almost like we have to go through that to get to the other side and say, okay, well, I'm not going to tolerate that anymore. And I know myself more and I'm going to show up who I actually am. And I don't think there's a question in that. I think it's more of a statement and a frustration that we have to do that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, if you think about people, if someone's got their life set up to function just kind of OK, well enough. And it, so they, they do what they can to keep out curveballs, if you like. And so they'll be happy. They'll plod along with their with their work and their relationships. And if they're lucky, they won't have any big catastrophes happen in their life. But essentially, we can't even even if we try to just keep this kind of steady path, you know, keep a hand on the tiller and keep keep ourselves going in, in a straight direction. It's not that we can't prevent the th- bad things in life happening to us. You, know, you can't prevent someone, you know, getting cancer or you can't prevent, you know, like the company you work for like going into receivership and and you losing your job or so you, you can't no matter how much you try and keep life steady and on track you can't prevent those really difficult things from happening and then when they happen even though it's through no fault of your own that you've lost your job through redundancy a lot of people when they go through redundancy because it does make them do that soul searching and that looking at themselves they come out the other side and they go you know what I wasn't actually really that happy in that job it just paid the mortgage, I could do it, it wasn't, you know, stressful, but I wasn't actually really enjoying it. And now that I've been made redundant, I've decided that I want to set up a dog walking company and I love it and I go out every day with seven dogs and they all come bounding towards me when I open their gate. You know, I love those stories. And so whilst I think the problem is that society tells us that the difficult times are bad and that we shouldn't really have them. We should always be happy, we should always be smiling, and we should always be okay. And and that makes us fear difficult times, Mm. and it makes us fear looking at ourselves and and finding something that we don't like, because then we're going to have to kind of take some some steps to changing that. So I think society doesn't help with this. And actually, if you learn how to look look at the tricky, difficult stuff, it's usually not as bad as you you expect. You know, the fear of it is usually worse than the reality of it. Taking the time to unpack our stuff. That's why some people don't know themselves as well, going back to that thing. It's because they're scared of what they might find. But actually, you know, pretty much everyone's a good person. People are good people and they do their best with their lives. And if they stop and look at themselves, they will find a a good person. There might be some stuff that they might want to, maybe shift or change but ultimately my belief is that we're all good people and sometimes going through a difficult phase in our lives can do us a favor Mm. if we're prepared to turn towards it people who get stuck with low confidence sometimes it's because they're not prepared to go through that downward spiral but the problem is unless we go through the downward spiral we can't come out the other side so it's a kind of paradox thinking, I don't want to go through this downward spiral, it's going to be too horrible, I can't face it, so I'm just going to try and prevent that from happening, you actually get stuck in the downward spiral. So you get stuck in that place where you don't want to be because you're refusing to be in it, (laughs) but you're in it. So by learning to be compassionate towards ourselves when we're going through those difficult times means that we can go through through the difficult times and not give ourselves an even harder time when we're going through it. Or we might even have found some more confidence from going through that process.
0: And you said earlier, well, you said about about mindfulness. You also talked about meditation and your journaling. What other ways can people show compassion to themselves? One way, which people get stuck with sometimes at work, is about reaching
1: out for support. So I guess it's, you know, being compassionate to yourself is realising that you don't have to be everything you don't have to do everything, and that kind of perfectionist tendency that people often have, especially people low in confidence, like i'd love to run a study on it sometimes to sometime to see if there is a correlation between people who are generally lower in confidence and perfectionist tendencies because I'll put money on it that there is and so if you have a perfectionist tendency you you typically don't delegate or rely on other people to do work because you want it done just so and so that means that you pile the pressure on yourself and then often people will procrastinate because they give themselves such high expectations that they can't actually achieve them because they're unrealistic and so then they will find ways to procrastinate and it's kind of like it's better not to do that job at all than to do it 80% but actually learning when good enough is is a great form of compassion but often learning when good enough is is realizing that you can't do everything and that you need help from other people and so reaching out for support so a lot of people view not a lot of people but some people view asking for help as a sign of weakness as a you know it's a sign that they can't hold everything and do everything but actually the world's a better place if you put a few heads together to try and solve a problem if i just sit here and try and work something out by myself I'm only going to get so far. If I sit and talk to someone else who's got a different perspective to me, then we can bounce some ideas around and come up with some even more innovative ideas than I would just by myself. If you've got other people around working with you to support each other, that's a form of self-compassion because you're not just overloading yourself mm-hmm. and saying, like, I'm, I'm the martyr, I'll take this on. Actually, no. Don't be a martyr. Get get out of there. And work with a team of people, or or find someone who can kind of give you some kind of emotional support. Even if they can't help deliver what you're what you're doing at work, you can at least have a chat with a mentor or a colleague. Suddenly, you don't feel like you're the only one who's struggling to do something at work or having a hard time. Everyone has a hard time, maybe in different ways, but everyone's got their thing in life
0: that's tough this is why you do what you do and why people reach out to you is to start sort unpacking some of that internal challenge and I suppose really starting to know each other we haven't really talked about zest psychology at all in fact we haven't talked about it but no. uh, you run a business as well, yes.
1: as well yes. and
0: um and very successful one as well and um, how can people find you how can people um, get to know a little bit more about what you do in your work
1: yeah. So, well, my website is Um I'm on LinkedIn. So I, I, I mean, I'm not a big fan of LinkedIn particularly, but I do like writing blogs. They're not very long. I'm not I'm not a great lengthy blog writer, but I like kind of chatting about the stuff that I'm musing about in my head, either on LinkedIn or on my website.
0: Well, Anna, thank you so much for joining Women in Confidence today. And thank you so much for your time and all your experience. I mean, you totally out experienced me. So my confidence levels are pretty low right now. Of <laughs> thank you so much. Oh, for- it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for letting me just uh, go off on many a tangent. It's been a lovely way to start the morning. Thank you so much for listening to Women in Confidence and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, then please like it, share it, comment on it, and if you want to, sponsor it. If you'd like to take part in my podcast or know somebody who would make a perfect guest, then please email me on contact at vanessa-murphy.com. That's contact at vanessa-murphy.com. Until next time.